and fellowship. Um, the Old Testament reading is taken from Exodus 17. And um, while you're turning to Exodus 17, I want to remind you that we believe the Bible is the Word of God written. It's the only infallible rule of faith and practice. This is not man's reflections about God. There's not, this is not a bottom-up kind of thing, but it's a top-down thing. This is revelation. This is God speaking to his listening people. And, and if you're listening, that's a sign that the Holy Spirit is working in you. And I pray, of course, uh, that he is and that you are. And uh, before we read, let's pray and ask the Spirit to help us. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us and give us ears to hear. We have read the Bible so many times that we didn't really hear, and it rolled off of us like water off of a duck's back. We don't want this time to be like that. James tells us to re receive the word implanted to the saving of your souls. Lord, that's what we want. That's what we ask you for in Jesus' name. We ask that the spirit that inspired these words would illuminate them to our understanding. And I pray, Lord, you'd use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read uh, Exodus 17, and then I'm going to read Jesus' temptation from Luke chapter 4, and the text I've selected here um, in, in uh, Exodus is to help us to understand the third of the three temptations, and, and so let's read this, and then we'll take it up later when we're looking at the temptation. So at verse 2 of Exodus 17, this is obviously between Egypt and Horeb, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us? or not. Amen. Turn over, please, to Luke chapter 4. Verse 
And let me point out one thing about the flow, this section in Luke 4, uh, before I read it. When you look at Luke 4, as it comes at the end of Luke 3, it's kind of weird looking. And it's kind of surprising. Because what you've got is, in Luke chapter 3, is the baptism of Jesus. And then what you've got in chapter 4 is the temptation of Jesus. And sandwiched in between, you've got the genealogy of Jesus. And it's kind of like, genealogy? Okay, in Matthew's gospel, the genealogy comes up front. You kind of expect that. But it's right here between the baptism and between the temptation. And you think, what gives? Hopefully, I'm going to let you know what gives as I explain this morning. But I want you to alert you to that, okay? So here in Luke 4, a very familiar passage. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, and now the devil is quoting Scripture to Jesus, it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade. This is God's word, though. It won't fade. It will abide forever and forever. One of the things you don't know about me um, is that uh, one time in, in the, it seems like now a former lifetime, I thought God was calling me into teaching. And... Um, so to teach uh, in a seminary or a Christian college, you've got to have a, a teacher's union card, which is a PhD, you know. <laughs> That's a union card. It's really about what it is. And, um, and so I, I studied and, and got one and, and have never uh, used it full time, uh, which is reason there are not many books out there about guidance. Not many people know anything about it, so... Anyway, so as a teacher, I have done some teaching adjunctively in uh, three different seminaries and in and, and a Christian uh, high school and, and a, and, and a non-Christian college 
or two. And as a, as a, as a teacher, I have a grade book. And, and I brought my grade book along. You know how grade books work. You know, you got names down here, and then you got like first exam and second exam and paper and final exam and, and, and final grade, you know. And, and um, now I use it to grade how people listen to my sermons, so you better listen up, okay? I, I'll, I'll enter your names later, okay? I, I, I'll set it aside for now. I have a reason for that. I'll, I'll bring it uh, up later. Um, th- this passage is referred to as Jesus' uh, temptation, his testing, and we're all familiar with testings. Um, uh, this one, I think, is very much unlike we are tempted. I'll say more about that and get clear on that. But you know temptation, right? Your mother baked a cake, and she said, this is going to grandmother's for Christmas, and you cannot have any of it until we go. And that was a great temptation, but you had to resist. Um, this is a different type of temptation, though. Twice in this passage it says, if you are the Son of God, do something. Don't do something. I've never been tested like that. I don't think you have either, right? This is really different. I assume this is a real temptation. That Jesus actually was tempted in all things like as we are, yet without sin. So, Let me set it up for us this way, and I think it'll help us to understand in a full-blown way what's going on in this passage, okay? Suppose you're taking a course in high school or college, and you need to pass the course to either get into the next program you want to get in, or or you got to pass this test with a certain grade, Uh, you want to get a scholarship, or you want to get into this school or that school. And suppose further that you not only need to pass the test, but to get a a passing grade in the course or to get into the next program, you've got to score 100 on the test. And so it all rides on this one test that you've got to make a perfect score on. And now suppose further, I hope this isn't a nightmare for anybody, by the way. Some of you have probably been there. Suppose further that you know the test that's coming is a one-question test. You know what a one-question test is, so you're taking a history course, and the prof says, "Um, well, we're going to ask... He gives you the question ahead of time. Here's the question. Discuss the history of the world from the founding of recorded history unto the present, giving special attention to the main thoughts and movements along the way. One question tests are just awful if you have got to get a really good grade because it all happens or doesn't happen on the one test. Then suppose further you fail the test. You fail the test badly. You blank out and you don't get anything right. It's not that you made a 50 or 30, you made a zero. You just handed in a blank paper because your mind went blank. Where are you then? Where are you then? I want to mention three places you are. These are not the three points of my sermon. This is just the introduction, okay? First of all, you're where Adam was. You're where Adam was. You know Adam, that guy back in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? 
God gave him a one-question moral test. God put him in the garden, said, look, you can have anything except that tree, and the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And he ate thereof, and he was expelled from the garden. He failed the one-question test. He tested Adam's, Adam's morality, yes, but he also, I think, tested Adam's faith. Did Adam have the faith to believe that God was a good God? That God wanted the best for him? That God would provide for him? Remember the devil said, has God said? Do you believe what God said? Anyway, he failed. And the implication is, of course, that God has a grade book. Adam's name is in it. My name's in it. Friend, your name is in God's grade book. Your name is in God's grade book. Oh, okay. So the first place you are if you fail the one-question test is you're where Adam was. But we know that Adam's morality was imputed to us, and so you're where the entire human race is in Adam, right? That Adam's score on God's moral test is reckoned or imputed to all of us, and we're all born with a zero in God's grade book. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment in God's sight, wrote Isaiah. Not a one of them is good. Not a one of them is meritorious. Not a one of them earns God's favor. I think Luther felt that acutely. I think the more Luther dealt with the scriptures and his sin, the more he realized, I have nothing to offer to God. And that's very difficult for most people to accept, right? It's the reason many people never come to Christ, never embrace the gospel, is they never embrace the depth of their need. I've got a neighbor I've been talking to. His view is, well, we, no matter how much we do, we always need Jesus to do a little bit more for us. We can never quite get measured up. Well, no, it's not that you do 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent and Jesus does the rest. Friend, you're down at zero. And if you're going to make it into glory, God will do it all. I have an elder friend in a church in um, Kentucky where I once lived. His name's Lemuel. His first name's Lemuel. It's a rural Kentucky, you can imagine, okay? And so he said... He's, he's, I said to him one time, I said, Lemuel, I said, the big problem is not getting people saved. The big problem is getting people lost. It's getting people to see that they really need Jesus completely. He told me years later, he said, I thought that was the craziest thing in the world you told me when you told me that. He said, I don't think that's crazy now. That's the big issue. So, if we fail the one-question moral test that I opened with, then we're where Adam is, we're where the entire human race is, and we're where Israel, we are where Israel in the wilderness was, right? They were tested by God in the wilderness. We, we read one of those testings from uh, Exodus chapter 17. They were tested by God with hunger and thirst, and God provided for them water and meat and bread after they failed the test. Hebrews 3, 
is very clear, 1 Corinthians 10 is very clear that Israel in the wilderness failed their test. So, just to be graphic here, I know Reformed people are not supposed to do this, but I'm retired. So, that's your score in God's grade book. Right? You're born that way, and you haven't pulled your grade up to even two or one. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, so growing right out of that, how is Jesus tempted here in Luke 4? Well, he's tempted as the second Adam. And that's why the genealogy is where it is. Look at the text, please. So at the, in, in Luke 3, at verse 22, at the end of the baptism... God says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So then Jesus, in verse 23 of Luke 3, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph. And then he traces it all the way back into verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Right? So the first Adam failed. Now here's the second Adam. Here's the second Adam. And Paul taught this, right? You remember in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is called the second Adam. The first Adam this, the second Adam was a life-giving spirit. You remember that. So he's, he's at pains here to show that Jesus is descended from the, second, from, from the first Adam, that he is the second Adam. And he's also tempted as the, the new Israel. Israel was tested in the wilderness and failed. I just said that. Now God called Israel his son. In Hosea 11, God calls Israel his son. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, Jesus has gone down to Egypt, right, as a baby. They took him to Egypt, and then he came back after the death of Herod. And the text says in verse 15, Out of Egypt have I called my son, just like before... Israel, the son of God, the child of God, had been called out of Egypt. That Jesus in his life is replicating the history of the nation, but they got it wrong and he got it right. That's good news. It really is. So he's being tested as the second Adam, as the new Israel, and as I've said, obviously, as the son of God. In verse 3 of chapter 4 and verse 9 of chapter 4, it says, If you are the Son of God. Note also how the Holy Spirit is in the midst of this. He's baptized, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. What's going on here? Warfare. This is a battle. This is a battle between the devil and Jesus. It's a moral battle, and it's a spiritual battle, and it's Jesus, the divine warrior, going to do battle with the devil, just like they did, there was battle between the gods of Egypt and the real God, Jehovah God, in, in, at the time of the Exodus, in Exodus 12. 
just like there will be battle between Jesus in Revelation 19 when he comes on a white stallion or, or horse with a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, there's warfare, there's this picture, uh, there's this, the divine warrior theme is all through the Bible. This is that warfare. When Jesus resists these temptations, he will be qualified to represent you and me it's the spotless Lamb of God. And if he fails, he will not be the spotless Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So stakes, the stakes are really high. Really high. Extraordinarily high. I want to give you the essence of these temptations, and then I want to look at each one of them in turn. What's the essence of these? Well, the obvious one is, well, sin and be disqualified from being the Savior. That's the obvious temptation. That's what the devil's trying to do. Fail here, and they're all lost. Okay? That's what he's trying to do. But also, this is the temptation. He's saying to Jesus, you know, Jesus, you deserve glory. Why don't you take your glory now, before you suffer, before the cross, you've got a right to it. Take it. Bypass the cross and go for your glory now. I'll have more to say about it in a minute, but pretty obviously, <laughs> I've never been tested that way. You haven't either, right? Okay, let's look at these three temptations. I'll be quick. We don't have to be long on these. The first is the temptation of bread and God's care. And, the, and, the, and the, the big point here is there's something more important than eating. There's something more important than eating. So in verse 3, uh, Jesus, uh, the Son of God, uh, excuse me, verse 2, 40 days he's in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing d during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. No joke, I bet he was. So in verse 3, the devil says, if you're the Son of God... Command this stone to become bread. So Jesus is in the wilderness as Israel had been in the wilderness. Jesus is hungry as Israel was hungry. Jesus has been there 40 days. Israel was there 40 years. As the Son of God, He can perform this miracle. He can turn a stone to bread if He has a lapse of trust if he has a lapse of faith, if he has a lapse of commitment, what's the essence of this temptation? Has God said that he will provide for you? Has God said he will be good to you? Has God said that he will be your God? Distrust God. Provide for yourself. Prove your sonship now prior to the cross by performing this miracle and not waiting to prove that you're the Son of God by way of the resurrection. You know, Professor Murray, John Murray, has this wonderful interpretation of Romans 1, verse 4. He said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And you see, it's the resurrection that showed his glory. It's the resurrection that showed his power so much, so clearly. So the, so the devil's saying, don't wait till then, go for it now. 
Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, You shall remember the, way, the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might, you, might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so what Jesus is saying to the devil is, look, the word of God and obedience to God are more important to me than eating. He's saying to the devil, my future depends on the will of God, the words of God, not myself and not my food. As a matter of fact, in John 4, where he's dealing with the woman at the well and he sent the disciples off to town to get a burger and fries and come back and he's waiting for them there and he deals with the woman at the well and the the, the disciples come back and, he, and he's not interested in their food because he wants to save this, this lady. And, and they're just perplexed. And they say, at one point they said, did somebody bring him something to eat? And they just don't get it. And he says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus knows that if he fails... He cannot accomplish God's work. He cannot redeem the people of God. So the question is, how am I to live? And the answer is not primarily by food, but by faith. That's the first temptation. The second one is the temptation to rule through false worship. And, and the temptation here is, the point here is to say that there's something more important than immediate power and glory. There's something more important than immediate power and glory. Look at verses 5 and 6 and 7. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, I'm going to ask you to set aside the very interesting question. Dr. Ball can answer this for you. But don't get distracted by the question, how can the devil do this? Can the devil really do this? How can he do this? That would lead us astray from the point that, that I think God wants us to see in this passage. Think about who Jesus is at this point in time. Think about who he is, born in, in, in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, born of a poor Jewish teenage girl, right? She was probably teenage, young, poor. We know that from the sacrifice that was offered uh, at the day of, of his uh, cleansing. Uh, uh, there was a poor family. And, and he grew up, and in, in, in we assume that he, uh, his father as well as he, was a carpenter. Um, and and um, in our terms, Jesus at this point is a nobody. I mean, when people are going out to John in the River Jordan, he's just one of a mass of people. We tend to think, oh, well, there was this mass of people, and there was Jesus with a halo over his head, and there was a light shining on him and none of the others. But that's just not the case. He was just one of many walking out to the River Jordan to be baptized by John. He's a nobody. He's an absolute nobody in the eyes of the world at this time. And what he's shown is glory all the kings of the world. He's shown what? He's shown everything. Everything. He's offered what's rightfully his. He's offered what he made. 
He was offered what he is sovereign over. He was offered in space and time history the authority and the glory of all of them and the power of all of him that rightly he deserved. It was a little bit like, you know, you ever, you ever do this at Christmas time? Somebody says, uh, what do you want for Christmas? And you say, uh, I want a 16-pound sledgehammer. Okay. So they wrap it up and put it on the tree and you go over there and you pick it up and it's kind of like, well, I know what this is, Right? But you can't open it till Christmas morning. I gotta wait, you know. I'm trying to split firewood and I don't have my sledgehammer. This is what's being done to Jesus. It's wrapped up in a package. And it's his and it's gonna be his. And the devil says, take it now. Don't wait. Go for it, Jesus. It's yours. Satan is offering Jesus the significance that is rightfully his. He is saying to this nobody, I will make you into a somebody. And he will make him such that people will acknowledge his significance. But Jesus refused the worship of Satan. He refused to seize power and glory instantly or immediately apart from God's promise and God's provision and God's providence. The devil said, go for glory without Gethsemane and without Golgotha. Don't suffer. Don't sacrifice, Jesus. Be somebody. in a way that was not ordained for you. Jesus says, you shall worship the Lord your God. And Him only will you serve. You shall have no other gods before me is still the fundamental command. The third temptation is a temptation to test God's presence. To test God's presence and God's protection and God's care. And the, the essence, the point of this is there's something more important than, than, than proving that God is near. So I've already pointed out how the devil, having been thwarted by uh, Jesus' quoting of Scripture, now he quotes from Psalm 91, and he takes it out of context. It's a little convoluted. I'm not going to take the time to take you back to Psalm 91, to the passage that the devil quotes. But... but the, the, the point is, the devil is saying to him, look, you're God's. God will protect you. God will protect those who are his. Go ahead. Jump. Throw yourself down from the temple. If you are God's son, Jesus, you need not worry. Display your power. Display your glory in a flashy display before the cross, before the resurrection. The essence of this temptation is don't, don't live by the faith that God is present. Prove it. And Jesus quotes another scripture back to the devil. <laughs> I'll take Jesus over the devil on the use of scripture, right? And, uh, and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Now, look, if you've got a Bible and, and are willing to turn it, which I hope you are, look at Exodus 17 at that passage we read as the Old Testament reading. And so, so here's the point. Here's what's going on in Exodus 17. So they're thirsty. They want water. Uh, they, they're grumbling against Moses and grumbling against God. And, and, and it says in, at the end of verse 2, why do you test the Lord? They're testing the Lord. They're testing the Lord. How are they testing the Lord? What is the test? And look at, look at the last verse, verse 7 that I read, because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So we're, gonna, we're grumbling because we can't tell God's among us. So we want God to prove he's here. We don't want faith, we want sight. I was talking to a, a young woman one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon, and she was in another town, and she happened to be going to a church where I know that, uh, like yours, she was served the Lord's Supper uh, every Sunday. And she said to me, and among other things, as we were talking, she said, you just wonder if God cares. And I said, now wait a minute. I said, did you take the Lord's Supper this morning? She said, yeah. Now what did you think that tells you? Oh, <laughs> you take the Lord's Supper and then you go home and say, does God care? Cut me a little slack, people. I can't connect these dots, can you? How do you make sense of that? Doesn't this, doesn't this tell us that God cares, that God's here? If we come in faith to the Lord's table? Let me give you a few lessons and reminders uh, from this passage, and then I want to press to a actually a little deeper level with it. Here's the first lesson. Even those full of the Holy Spirit and squarely in the will of God can be greatly tempted. Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, squarely in the will of God. He's greatly tempted. Don't be surprised if you are greatly tempted. Don't be dismayed. Don't think, if God was with me, this is one of the lies of the devil. Listen carefully. If God was with me and if God cared it wouldn't be so hard, right? Some of you thought that. Many of you thought that. Most of you thought that. If I was more spiritual, if I was more spiritual, the Christian life would not be so hard for me, right? You've heard Satan whispering that in your ear, haven't you? Guess what? Christian life is hard sometimes. It is difficult sometimes. Is it joy? Yes. Is it all the positive things? Yes. Is it difficult sometimes? Absolutely. Sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. For our joy, Peter wrote about the tested genuineness of our faith. From the first temptation we learn real life does not come primarily from food or drink or clothing or possessions, but from submission and obedience to God and His Word. From the second temptation we realize that significance that lasts does not come from serving Satan and seeking significance by power and glory, from the world. Real significance comes by being adopted into the family of God and written in His will and given His name. It was true for Jesus. It's true for us. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is very clear uh, in questions 27 and 28 of the Shorter Catechism, and, and there's a pattern here. I'm not going to read them and draw them out. I'm just going to read the questions. Wherein did, the, did Christ's humiliation consist? 
Question 28, wherein consists Christ's exaltation? But see, the pattern is humiliation, then exaltation. And what the devil is saying to Jesus is, forget this humiliation stuff, Jesus. Go for the glory now. Go for it now. Bypass the cross, turn the stone into bread, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. All of this stuff, bypass the cross and take your glory now. Of course, Jesus could do that, but you wouldn't have been saved if he did. I wouldn't be saved. No one would have been saved if he'd bypassed the cross. From the third temptation, we learned that we should not artificially put ourselves in positions that force God to act to save us and deliver us. So I promised you a little deeper, and let me go a little deeper right here, okay? Look at the last verse of Luke 4, verses 1 to 13 that I read earlier. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the picture is that the devil left and the devil came back. Oh, really? And I find myself, I can't prove this with chapter and verse, but pastorally I've seen that temptation tends to come in cycles. Uh, sometimes temptation is very fierce and then it's not so fierce and later it may be fierce again. Okay. Now the battle has been won. The German general said of, in 1944, if they establish a beachhead, we've lost the war. And of course they did establish a beachhead and the Germans did lose the war. And this is Jesus now. He's established the beachhead in resisting the temptation. But when did, Jesus, when did the devil come back to Jesus? I'm going to mention two things. The first one's in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16, Jesus is asking his disciples who they think he is. He first says, who, who do people say the Son of Man is? And some say somebody, Elijah, somebody, some say this, some say that. Jesus said, but who do you think I am? And Peter said, speaking for the group, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus commended him and said, that's great, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And that is in verse uh, um, 16 of Matthew 16. Five verses later, five verses later, only five verses later, Peter's confession is followed by Peter's confusion. Peter's confusion. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What did Peter say to Jesus? He said to Jesus, don't go to the cross. Don't go to the cross. Jesus said, I'm going to go to the cross. And Peter said, never, Lord. And Jesus called him Satan. Why? Because Peter is tempting 
Jesus the same way Satan had tempted Jesus in Luke 4. Really? Fast forward to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Jesus is nailed to the cross. He's been crucified. He came to His own, and His own received Him not. And, and He's on the cross, and at Matthew 27, uh, beginning at verse 39, but I won't read all of that. Uh, the, um, I'll just look at verse 40. Uh, it said, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. What would you have done? I'll tell you what I would have done. It would have been the greatest superhero action movie that's ever been. Fire would have come out of heaven. And they would have been all reduced to ashes. And none of us would have been saved. I would have come off the cross. I would have come down from the cross. And if I had come down from the cross, if I was the Savior, if Jesus had come down from the cross... No one would be saved. You wouldn't be saved. I wouldn't be saved. Nobody would be saved. What held Jesus on the cross? Was it nails? We talk about that. Was it sins? I'll tell you what held Him on the cross. Nothing but love. Love for who? Well, love for His Father. He had committed to come. But love for you and me and all who will believe in Him. It's love. God's moral testing is throughout the Bible and throughout history of Adam, of Israel, of Jesus, of you and me. I haven't done so well. How about you? Somebody said to me, Alan, how you doing about sin? I said, well, I do it regularly. I sin regularly. What, well, what do you struggle the most with? Well, let's read the Ten Commandments. I struggle with all of them, don't you? What I would say to you. But the good news, what's the good news? Well, the, the sermon title is Good News, uh, Jesus Passed God's Test. He passed God's moral test. He, he passed God's moral test for himself. And, here's the good news, the really good news, he passed God's moral test for you. For you. It's like somebody trying to get into college and, 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 and they need to take the SAT and make a certain, or the ACT and make a certain grade to get into college. And, and they take it the first time and they make eight. And, and there's a retest and they make 18 and you think, well, somebody took their test for them. Yeah. And you took God's moral test and you made a zero. And Jesus took God's moral test and he made a hundred and he imputes... His righteousness, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are. We sang it in the first song. And so when you believe in Jesus, where is it? He, he, he goes into God's grade book and He puts a one and a zero before your score. That's what happens in the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Then why are you trying to pull your grade up? if you believe it. Some of you are trying to pull your grade up. Some of you are living like, well, you know, Jesus has forgiven me, but if God's really going to love me, I've got to perform. 
and you're never convinced of the full bore love of God because you think, well, I haven't performed. And you know what? You haven't. <laughs> you haven't. But Jesus has. You know, it's a little arrogant. I chose that word carefully. It's a little arrogant to think you're going to pull up Jesus' work. Oh, no, I don't believe that. I, I, I'm going to pull up my score. Listen, friend, your score is rubbish. Your score is rubbish. Jesus has written a hundred by your name in God's great book. That's the good news. And the question is, how will I respond to that? Jesus scores all that you will ever need. It's all that God will ever accept, right? So what should motivate our, our, our obedience? Well, thankfulness and love and gratitude. We should sacrifice and serve for Him because of what He did for us and what is ours by faith. And friend, if you've never really trusted Him this way, I want to ask you to do that this morning. I want, to either grow, want you either to grow in your understanding or see it afresh or see it anew, one or the other. Because this is the gospel we preach. This is the gospel by which you can be saved. And this is the gospel that we celebrate at this table this morning. Let us pray. Lord our God, thank you. Thank you that Jesus took our moral test for us after we were abject failures. He took the test and made a perfect score and writes his score by our name in your great book. Help us to believe it and to live from it in joy through Christ our Lord. Amen.